Welcome to the December episode of Mercalis in Motion, the official podcast series brought to you by Mercalis. Mercalis is an integrated life sciences commercialization partner that provides comprehensive solutions that span the entire healthcare value chain. The company partners closely with its clients to deliver an end-to-end spectrum of commercial capabilities that work together seamlessly and flexibly. Backed by proven industry expertise and results-driven technology, Mercalis provides the data and strategic insights, patient support services, and healthcare provider engagement tools to help life sciences companies successfully commercialize new products. Above all, Mercalis helps navigate the complex life sciences marketplace to accelerate value and enhance patient lives. Founded in 2000, Mercalis provides commercialization solutions to more than 500 life sciences customers and has provided access and affordability support to millions of patients. The company is headquartered in Morrisville, North Carolina. For more information about Mercalis, please visit Mercalis.com. My name is Landy Townsend, the VP of Marketing and Communications here at Mercalis, and Sitting beside me in the studio is Mr. Eric Manning, Mercalis's creative director. Eric, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm uh, looking forward to the holidays, uh, getting on the other side of it, but also looking forward to uh, spending some time with family. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, mid. We're recording this in mid-December with those aforementioned holidays right around the corner, and in the next week or so, a lot of our colleagues in the life sciences industry will be shutting down for a week or two if you're lucky enough as the calendar turns from 2023 to 2024. But based on some recent developments in a very well-publicized relevant topic, um, we reached out to two individuals very familiar with that topic, and they are our guests today on Mercalis in Motion. So before we knock off for the year, Let's let's talk about this very important issue, and as a matter of fact, let's meet those two gentlemen now. First of all, I'm joined by Michael Harris, Mercalis' Vice President of Patient Support Service Strategy. Michael, please introduce yourself for our audience. Thanks, Landy. Uh, Michael Harris, I've been at Mercalis for almost 10 years now. Uh, for the my tenure here, been focused on patient affordability. Uh, and obviously, in the last you know, two to four years, a, a lot of focus on accumulators and maximizers. Great. Um, our first guest is Carl Schmidt, the Executive Director at HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute. Carl, thank you for being with us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So um, I'm in Washington, D.C., and we focus on making sure people living with or at risk of HIV and hepatitis have access to um, affordable, uh, accessible health care. And a lot of that work pertains to prescription drug access uh, because, you know, HIV and hepatitis can be treated uh, these days, even a cure for hepatitis C. So work a lot on, on patient uh, affordability and access of prescription drugs and work with a lot of other patient groups as well. Great. Thanks for being with us today. Also with us on this episode is Bill Sorrell, a partner with the Sidley Law Firm, also in Washington, D.C. Bill, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in healthcare law? Sure. I uh, am a member of our very large life sciences team, and I concentrate on working with pharmaceutical manufacturers, patient groups, and others that are interested in 
patient access and affordability issues, and I'm delighted to be here today. Great. So I'm going to start off with Michael. Uh, Michael, now that our guests have been introduced, um, can you set the table about the topic we're going to discuss today and explain what you know what's going on? Yeah, so accumulators and maximizers health plan designs have been around for several years now, and Mercalysis has been implementing mitigation strategy against them, working with a lot of life science clients. What's interesting in a, in a newer dynamic is, is more on the legal side that Carl will go into on, on the, the ruling and the, the filing that he did um, on, on the behalf of the HIV Institute. And so that legal component has now introduced a new dynamic that the marketplace is having to react to. So over a year ago, uh, my organization, along with two diabetes organizations, filed Administrative Procedures Act complaint um, against the U.S. government for their, uh, their rule, and it was the 2021 Notice of Benefit and Payment Parameters Rule, that said insurers may but are not required to count copay assistance towards a beneficiary's uh, out-of-pocket costs. And um, so that you know, really set the stage for uh, rampant uh, increase of copay accumulators. And I should remind people that the rule before, the year before, uh, it said that um, only uh, copay accumulators can be put in place for brand name drugs with a generic equivalent, which was something that we, you know, was not perfect, but uh, we went along with and, and, and counted it as a victory. But they never implemented it. And they uh, then the next year put in this terrible uh, rule. And, uh, and we know what's happened since then. Uh, accumulators have taken off, and it's really been hurting uh, patient access and affordability of prescription drugs. Uh, and uh, we've been trying, you know, to get the administration, both the Trump and the Biden administration, to, to reverse that rule, but uh, to no avail. And so uh, we did file this uh this uh, litigation in uh, D.C. court here in D.C., uh, district court, federal district court, and uh, it's Administrative Procedures Act. So we went uh, on two uh, different ways. We said it was a violation of the Affordable Care Act law and the regulations. You know, the regulations for the definition of cost sharing says on our behalf of a, um, a beneficiary. And then we also went out and said it was arbitrary and capricious as well um, because it allowed insurers to decide uh, themselves if copay assistance can count or not. And we also said that the 2020 rule, that good rule, was abandoned without the due process. And they also said that, oh, copay accumulators are not going to increase. And so they really didn't go to do a good analysis. So our requested relief was to uh, to um, set aside that um, provision that allows copay accumulators and then to also declare that copay accumulators are illegal. Great. Thanks for setting the table there. Uh, Bill, any response on your end? I think that's a great summary of the case. And of course, uh, subsequent to that, the court uh, ruled. And perhaps that's where Carl can take us next. Yeah. So I wanted to um, <clears throat> to mention Marcalis's involvement in this. Marcalis supported this case to end accumulators by filing an amicus brief in support of your efforts against accumulator plans. Um, number one, how did that brief help your efforts, Carl? And were you surprised Marcalis was the only copay organization in the industry to file a brief? 
Yeah, so um, there's been a lot of misinformation. And I'm going to use that word in a very nice way um, because it's more than misinformation about copay accumulators and how they work. And, um, you know, to policymakers, the media, insurance regulators, um, a lot of misinformation. And uh, we wanted to make sure the judge knew how copay accumulators work, how they harm patients, how it extracts more money from the uh, manufacturers, and also how uh, the insurers actually get more money um, under uh, copay accumulators. So we were pleased uh, that you guys uh, submitted a uh, amicus brief and to really ex and it really helped explain to the judge how copay accumulators work um, and uh, the harm it, it, it causes to patients. And I think you, you know, you were able to present data as well to show that patients that do have copay accumulators, they don't adhere to their medications um, as much. So um, I think it was really important uh, to uh, to explain, you know, to the judge. And it carried the day and he actually, you know, quoted them in the in the decision later on. Yeah, it did really seem, Carl, that, that you know, from, from my experience, that when you explain this to uh, people who are not intimately involved with this, they often can't understand the, the negative patient uh, impact, and they only think about financial dollars, where a lot of the data examples that we provided clearly show how patients are harmed in this situation. Yeah, Bill, anything to add from your end? Yeah, I think that uh, a big part of the brief, which we were honored to work on, had to do exactly as, as Carl and you have highlighted with pointing out the harm to patients, that it's not merely financial, but that it actually affects uh, their treatment or, or uh, in fact, impedes their treatment. We also, I think, tried to do several other things, which we hope were helpful in the uh, decision that then uh, was secured from the court. We certainly wanted to broaden the discussion from accumulators explicitly to maximizers. We wanted to stress that under the anti-discrimination provisions that uh, that apply under the ACA, that this uh, set of programs really are discriminatory, that they target people based on their conditions and the costs associated with those conditions and are uh, separately a, a violation of the discrimination protections of the ACA. Uh, we wanted to focus, uh, Carl mentioned that, that there were several aspects to the attack that they put together. We wanted to focus in particular on the statutory language and to show uh, from our uh, perspective why the law itself, the statute itself, precludes the position that the government uh, has taken. Um, and uh, we uh, very definitely also wanted to emphasize what we thought was an unlawful and improper delegation of this question about what to do with uh, co-payments under the statute uh, by the agency to insurers. Congress gave uh, the agency the power to uh, interpret and enforce the law. They didn't give it to insurers. Now let's move forward to a few months ago when the judge ruled in favor of the HIV Institute. In the marketplace, the ambiguity of the response left a lot of open questions. At that time, Carl, did you feel the ruling was clear and the end of accumulators had occurred? 
Um, well, that's a difficult question. Um, we, the judge sided with us. He struck down exactly what we wanted to, him to do. He struck down the rule that allowed uh, insurers to implement copay accumulators. So we were successful and uh, accomplished uh, that. He did find it arbitrary and capricious. He said that a regulated party cannot decide uh, what the definition of cost sharing is. Uh, and you can't have you know, it two ways. Either it counts or it doesn't count. And it, it's not up to the regulated body to decide that. So we struck it down. Um, and because of that, the uh, under the Administrative Procedures Act, the previous rule, which is the 2020 rule, uh, should be in effect right now. And um, the and that allows uh, copay accumulators only for brand name drugs when there's a, a generic. However, it, you know, we didn't get everything that uh, we wanted. He did not say that copay accumulators are against the Affordable Care Act. He didn't rule on the um, the, the law uh, of the what under the Affordable Care Act. What is the definition of cost sharing? Is manufacturer assistance part of that? He said that it was not clear, and he remanded it back to the federal government to uh, to promulgate further regulations on that. On the regulated regulation about the definition of cost sharing on our behalf of the individual, he bought all of our arguments and he um, was against all the U.S. government's arguments. But then he came up with a, an additional argument as well. But he said, I'll let the government uh, deal with that in the future. Um, but and he didn't, um, you know, deal with a couple of other issues that we wanted him to deal with. Uh, like uh, we said that the insurers are collecting more money than they should under the um, Affordable Care Act. But he clearly said, you know, this increases patient cost sharing, increases manufacturer uh, costs, increases payments to insurers. And he said this is not a discount. And that's what the insurers and the U.S. government kept on saying, that copay assistance is a discount. No, it is really a, um, a, um, a payment, you know, to help um, in, uh, the patients pay. So he didn't address everything that we wanted to. And it allows the government to um, go back and issue further regulations. But we really need and looking for some guidance now uh, from the federal government and in the next steps. Yeah, I, I think there were uh, two things that were clear from the decision, from from my perspective, at least. The first in the near term was that this regulation that the government was uh, was relying on had been vacated and that uh, as a consequence, the prior regulation that Carl has talked us through uh, is uh, in effect. And that was extremely important uh, because it uh, should mean that patients uh, at present are able to have uh, these amounts count towards their cost sharing so long as the branded product doesn't have uh, a generic equivalent. So I thought that was absolutely clear from what the court said. And then it was also clear, as, uh, as Carl has said, what was unclear, which is that uh, there would be a further process of additional uh, regulatory development by uh, the government and uh, the course of that was yet to be determined. Uh, unfortunately, as Carl can probably take us through, uh, there's been a subsequent uh, development uh, 
that has now uh, clouded what was uh, clear about the short term. Uh, and uh, that is a very disturbing development. And it uh, unfortunately is indicative of what appears to be an administration that uh, is more concerned about uh, advocating for insurers' flexibility and prerogatives than about protecting patients. And that is a sad state of affairs, unfortunately. That is a great segue into my next question, Bill. Um, and what you're speaking of, of course, is that more recently, HHS had filed a motion to clarify an appeal. So, Carl, did that, did that response from HHS surprise you? It certainly did. I mean, we were, you know, encouraging, urging the administration, along with many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, to issue guidance uh, now that, you know, we uh, won this victory and that, as Bill said, the, the 2020 rule uh, should be in effect and uh, that we wanted some guidance coming out of the administration, uh, going to insurers and insurance commissioners saying that that is the case and copay assistance must count in most instances. But instead, what they did is um, the day before the deadline for uh, to appeal the case, they uh, they asked, they filed a motion to clarify with the, the judge that ruled, you know, in our favor. Uh, saying uh, we, they didn't ask what rule is in effect. They just said, uh, we're not going to enforce this decision. And is that okay with you? And in the meantime, also, we're going to issue new regulations on the definition of cost sharing. And, you know, that could take a long, long time. And, uh, but until that rule is finalized, we're not going to enforce this. And then the next day, they actually filed an appeal of the decision. I learned later that that was a protective appeal. It was just, you know, putting their oar in the water. Um, but um, as Bill said, really disappointing uh, that this shows the direction that they're going in, which is not a good direction. Um, they should be right now uh, enforcing the 2020 rule. We filed um, our own, uh, you know, reply brief, and uh, we said that you have. There's no, you know, discussion. You ha you have to government uh, and the judge. You have to tell them that you have to enforce uh, the uh, the 2020 uh, rule. And uh, so that's where we stand right now. That's in the process. That's uh, the government will then have its opportunity to uh, file one more brief, and we hope we will get a decision and a favorable one, uh, you know, in early January. And, you know, if, if it goes our way, then, uh, you know, the federal government will have to enforce the 2020 rule. Um, if it doesn't, then the government doesn't uh, enforce the 2020 rule, and then we have to then focus on a new proposed rule, and we don't know which way that's going to go. And uh, so there's a lot of work and a lot of unknowns in the year uh, coming forward. Yeah, Carl, I agree. There was you know, a lot of conversations I had was also, also you all said that with a surprise because you know many sought clarification, uh, you know, details like you just talked about, but instead it was it was you know not that. So I, you know I think a lot of folks were surprised as well. 
Yeah, I think that oftentimes uh, government speak for clarification is uh, actually uh, a an attempt to evade uh, the consequences of of judicial determinations that they don't like. Uh, it's a nice way to ask the court to step back from the very decision that the court has just made. And I certainly interpret their motion here in that uh, in that way. Uh, essentially, they're looking for three bites at the apple to try and uh, and evade the vacator uh, uh, of the uh, of the regulation that they were defending in the first instance. They hope uh, first that. Uh, the court will, uh, at the district court level, say that what they're proposing to do, which is in effect to suspend uh, the pre-existing regulation that we believe they're obligated uh, to enforce, uh, doesn't in fact require them uh, to, uh, to adopt that as their interim position, even their interim position. The second thing, the second bite at the apple, is that they're hoping that the court, uh, whatever it may say on what the uh, legal uh, standing is of that prior regulation, that the court isn't going to tell uh, the agency what it has to do by way of enforcement or non-enforcement. Uh, the third bite at the apple is the possibility of uh, an appeal uh, to the Court of Appeals if it uh, the government does not like uh, how its first two bites at the apple go before the district court. And, you know, what I take from that, unfortunately, is that uh, the government seems very committed to a policy uh, that is uh, bad for patients and uh, that we all know is bad for patients. And, uh, you know, among the, the things that I think that uh, advocates for patients need to be thinking about now, and I put myself in that, uh, that group as well, is not just the question of what this subsequent regulatory process might look like, uh, not even uh, what a subsequent appeal might look like, but the question about whether or not private enforcement efforts using unfair and deceptive uh, Trade Practice Act claims or other uh, hooks for litigation directly against uh, insurance companies are going to be necessary uh, in order to move this forward as uh, as a meaningful mechanism to perfect to uh, protect patients. I hope that's not necessary. I hope that the district court. Uh, First, and then the Court of Appeals potentially thereafter uh, says enough to protect patients, but uh, it, it is at least uh, possible now that additional pieces of litigation are going to be necessary. Michael, let's turn to you as a member of the Mercalis team. Uh, what approach is Mercalis taking going into 2024 regarding this case and the response from HHS? We'll definitely be continuing to help Carl in his efforts, uh, whether that's you know, data uh, that supports him, uh, any, any evidence or, or conversations needed. Um, definitely we'll continue to help Carl. What's interesting uh, from, from less of a legal standpoint is life sciences organizations are still out uh, going into 2024 implementing mitigation strategies. Many are aware of the case, know the status of it, uh, but look at it and say, hey, we, we can't keep being impacted. So many are still 
implementing new solutions or continuing what they have in place today with us going into 2024. And on top of that, we will continue to monitor all of our programs. It will be interesting at the end of Q1 to look at the data and see if we see whether specific brands or across our whole book of business, if we see a decrease in accumulator, maybe in, in connection to this court case. But we will continue to monitor each of our programs and see their impact, both accumulator and maximizers. But it, I think it will be interesting to look at the data and compare it to this court case. Carl, do you think it's important we head into 2024 that Mercalis continues to be engaged in this case and, and the recent back and forth to see how this all plays out? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you guys were really helpful in the, uh, you know, the first case. And as we go through the appeals process, uh, we're going to need amicus briefs again uh, and, uh, and data, any data, just trends and things like that, I think, are uh, really helpful. And then, you know, as we uh, prepare comments for, you know, there's, there's several tracks going on. I guess we're in district court right now. We're going to be in appeals court as well, but we also have to remember there is the uh, the regulatory front and that the government is going to be proceeding uh, with uh, regulations as well and what the definition of cost sharing is. So I think, you know, having data, you know, hopefully you guys, you know, will respond uh, to uh, those uh, actions, those proposed um, rulemaking. But I definitely think it's uh, important to be part of that process. Carl, in closing, can you give us your prediction as to how this will likely play out in 2024? And what advice would you give to life sciences organizations that are currently impacted by accumulator plan designs? Yeah, so um, I'm an optimist and um, I think we're going to win in the uh, district court. Uh, why would the judge not want his own decision to be enforced? And, um, and you know, and then we, the government will be compelled to, um, to enforce it along with state insurance commissioners. And um, I can't imagine, even though Bill keeps on saying, and, you know, that <laughs> all the tea leaves, you read all the filings, they look like they're going to go against us. But I can't imagine the Biden administration would put out a rule saying, you know, in election year that, um, you know, that copay assistance is not going to count. Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb and uh, say that they will either do nothing uh, and just keep the 2020 rule in effect, which is positive news, or uh, just reiterate it. Um, but um but definitely in how the um, life science companies, you know, I think work with the patient advocate, uh, you know, groups, uh, make sure that they have data, have information. I mean, it, it's this issue has been tough for patients and patient groups because it's so esoteric. People don't know that they're being impacted by it. So if the information that we get by companies like Callis and uh, the life science companies is really helpful and to help uh, patient groups uh, be able to engage on this issue. Bill, give you the last word. Well, I just uh, uh, wish that I was the optimist that Carl is. Carl is a fantastic advocate uh, for patients, and uh, oftentimes his incredible work springs from his uh, his optimism. And uh, uh, I, I shouldn't 
venture a different opinion about what might happen given how successful he's been to date. But given the inherent pessimism of my own brain, which uh, 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 I can't uh, I can't uh, do anything but acknowledge, I do worry that the administration is committed to uh, delaying any regulatory consideration of this issue until after the election when perhaps it would be easier to say something that was uh, less protective of patients than the administration should. And that uh, in the interim, they are you know, doing as much as they can to have their cake and to eat it too by uh, announcing this, uh, this uh, position of non-enforcement. Uh, I do think that you know, there will be options available to patient groups and life sciences companies and others uh, who want to support patients uh, even before a proposed regulation is initiated. And that process begins, as I mentioned before. Uh, but some of those uh, options may require additional litigation in uh, other parts of the country. But we'll, uh, we'll all await uh, the decision of the district court here on the quote unquote motion to clarify. And uh, I know that uh, all of the patient community is very eager for the kind of data that you've talked about to determine uh, what, if any, changes plans are making in light of this decision. Both of those things will tell us more in the near term and uh, strategy will evolve from there. But uh, Carl, I, again, I just want to thank you for everything you do for patients. All right. Thank you. Well, that will just about do it for this episode of Mercalis in Motion. I wanted to thank both Carl Schmidt and Bill Sorrell for taking time out of their busy schedules to join us. Gentlemen, it's been truly great to have two individuals that have been as close to this issue as you both have um, available to, to discuss this with us today. And if our viewers wanted to learn a little bit more about Mercalis, we have a brand new website that we'd love for you to visit at mercalis.com. That's M-E-R-C-A-L-I-S.com. And if you have any questions about the services that Mercalis provides and would like to speak with someone, you can reach out to us at salesmercalis.com. And if you heard something today that piques your curiosity and you'd like to hear more, please check out our entire library of episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Until then, stay safe and be well, and we will see you next time. The Mercalis in Motion podcast is a production of Mercalis, Inc. It is edited and produced by Mercalis Creative Director Eric Manning. Mercalis in Motion and its content are the property of Mercalis, Inc., Morrisville, North Carolina, U.S. Hey.